Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Dan Fair. I'm an attorney with Celadon Law, uh, and I've been asked by the Boston Bar Association to give a presentation on um, uh, the business immigration law. It's, it's a very big topic. We'll do our best to condense it into one hour. Um, but um, realistically, it's, it's a topic that you know, we could go, you could teach a, a course on, but th this is really just an overview to give people a kind of a taste of, of what uh, employment-based immigration entails. Um, I, I have a deck of 62 <laughs> slides, so I'll do my best to, 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 to go through those as quick as I can. Um, if uh, I'll try to reserve some time for questions. However, if, if I'm not able to get to the questions, this um, first slide has my contact information. My email is just my first name, Daniel at celadonlaw.com. So if you do have questions, absolutely feel free to email me and I'm happy to, uh, to take questions that way. Um, so uh, let's, uh, let's get started. So, um, so the first thing that we'll do is we'll, um, just give a quick overview of some of the uh, some of the key government agencies that are involved in um, the uh, employment-based immigration. Um, so the first of these is the uh, Department of Homeland Security, which is the uh, umbrella agency that legacy uh, INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, was folded into. The one that you'll you'll deal with primarily will be USCIS when when seeking immigration benefits. Um, that's where all your um, all, all your uh, applications are, are filed. CBP, uh, Customs and Border, Border Patrol, uh, is responsible for inspecting and uh, hopefully admitting um, persons seeking to come into the U.S. on on a visa. Um, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is responsible for, as the name implies, uh, the enforcement of of immigration laws within the United States. So. Um, if you're doing employment-based immigration, hopefully you're not encountering ICE, um, but um, it, it is a possibility. Uh, the Department of State uh, is, is one of the other three uh, key agencies that, that you'll deal with. Um, the, the DOS operates the, the embassies and consulates abroad, and they're responsible for issuing visas. Um, so they will conduct background checks, um, review uh, interviews. They're, they're, um, uh, for persons who are abroad um, seeking an immigrant or a non-immigrant visa, they, uh, the DOS will, um, they'll be the party responsible for um, reviewing their application for a visa. And then um, the Department of Labor is the, the third um, big umbrella entity. Um, and specifically, you'll encounter the Employment and Training Administration, which is a, a, a uh, a a sub-agency of the of DOL, and specifically their Office of Foreign Labor Certification, which um, is responsible for uh, certifying labor condition applications, um, reviewing the, the labor cert as part of the PERM process, and uh, they also issue prevailing wage determinations. Um, the Wage and Hour Division is responsible for the enforcement um, of uh, labor conditions. Uh, now we'll go on to some key definitions. So um, the first of these, uh, and these will be uh, uh, alphabetical. Adjustment of status, that's basically the process of obtaining uh, lawful permanent resident status um, 
in the United States without without actually departing uh, the United States. Um, sometimes people will um, will will obtain lawful permanent resident status abroad um, through an embassy, um, or or if they're inside the United States, that would happen through USCIS through adjustment of status. Um, not to be confused with uh, change of status, which is basically a changing from one non-immigrant status to another. Um, admission. Uh, this is a key, um, a key uh, concept for for uh, immigration purposes. But basically, it's the process of of uh, allowing someone to enter the United States to come through the border um, with permission from Customs and Border Patrol. Um, consulate processing, that's the process of applying for an immigrant or a, a non-immigrant visa at a consular post. And then derivative status, um, uh, certain visas allow for derivative status um, for, for family members. This would include, um, for example, the, H, the H-1B allows family members to come in on an H-4, the J-1 allows people to come on a J-2, et cetera. So, um, not all, but some some uh, visas do allow people to, um, to spouses and unmarried children to to come in um, as part of the status. An EAD, uh, which is the employment authorization document, it's it's basically a um, a little credit card sized document, a little plastic card that evidences that um, a person has conditional authorization to work in the United States that's issued um, as part of another status. So, um, you know, it could be issued as part of a, um, or, or an application for another status. So um, it could be issued as part of a, um, a green card application or an asylum application. Um, in, uh, there's a, a type of card, o o OPT or CPT, where um, people are, are issued at that, um, uh, an EAD as, as part of their, um, uh, student visa status, which we'll get into later. Um, the exchange visit visitor, that's, um, it's not exactly an employment visa, but um, it, it's sort of, um, it's, it's a, a program, uh, the, the J-1 program is cr was created uh, to foster cultural exchange between the U.S. and, and other countries. Um, and, and cultural exchanges, uh, think, think like diplomatic ties. Um, so culture are very broadly defined. Uh, the green card, uh, similar to the EAD, it's a small, uh, like a license size card that evidences a person's um, lawful permanent resident status, basically that they have a you know, permission to remain in the US permanently. Um, now that's, the, the green card is proof of lawful permanent resident status, but it's not the status itself. Um, so even if someone has an, ex an expired green card, it's not that their status has expired, it's just that their proof of status has expired. The I-94, uh, that's an, uh, an arrival and departure record. Um, basically, it indicates the, your status um, when, you're, when you're allowed in the United States. So it'll say, you know, the, the, the I-94 will indicate whether you're in, admitted as, um, whether you're paroled, whether you're admitted as a B2, an H1B, or whatever uh, status you were given. And it also will indicate the, the expiration date of your, of your status. And that's, that's a document issued by Customs and Border Patrol. In the old days, it was 
like a little paper card that was uh, stapled into your passport. Now it's an electronic system. An immigrant um, that uh, is, is a, another way of referring to a lawful permanent resident of the United States. Um, all persons seeking to come into the United States are presumed to have uh, immigrant intent. In other words, intent to remain permanently. And it becomes, um, in order to receive non-immigrant status, with some exceptions, uh, it's necessary for them to prove that they do not have not, uh, immigrant intent. So basically that they have a, a definite intent to, to depart at some point. The labor certification is a, um, that is a, um, it, it's a certification from the Department of Labor um, that there are no, that there are no willing and able U.S. workers to fill a position, um, that there's been an adequate test of the labor market to assure that, um, and that um, that employment of an intending immigrant is not going to uh, negatively impact um, U.S. workers. That, that's sort of the, the idea behind the, the, the labor cert. The LCA, similar to the, to the labor cert, um, that, I should clarify the the, the labor cert is um, part of the, um, the 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 immigrant the employment based immigrant visa process or immigrant immigration process I should say um, where someone is seeking to come permanently the the H one B um, which we'll get into again in in greater detail is is a non immigrant visa status um, but the the LCA is a um, um, it's a certification reviewed in, um, by the, the Department of Labor. It's a preliminary requirement for, um, for an H-1B application that, that basically um, where, whereby the, the, the U.S. employer is attesting that uh, employment of the, of the non-immigrant in this case is, is not going to be under circumstances that undercut the labor market. Um, you know that they're 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 going to be um, employed at prevailing wages. That they're not going to be used as strike breakers or, or anything like that. Um, lawful permanent residents, um, as we got into previously with the in reference to the green card, um, that's a person accorded the benefit of being able to reside in the U.S. permanently. Not it's it's not citizenship, so they can't vote or you know they can't hold elected office. Um, um, but they can work freely. Um, and um, one thing I would note, however, is that long absences from the United States can result in a, uh, a presumption that one has intended to abandon your LPR status. So it is something that um, you have to advise, um, you know, if you have LPR clients, it's good to advise them that um, if they do intend to, to make a long departure, that they, they make, um, they, they should basically talk to an attorney first and kind of lay the groundwork for any sort of long departure to ensure that they uh, are not basically stuck outside the United States, um, you know, with the finding that they have abandoned their residence. Naturalization, that's just the process of seeking to become a, law, uh, a citizen of the United States. Um, now, the, the non-immigrant um, that is a, a foreign national admitted temporarily to the U.S. Um, and as I said before, 
um, it, in order to receive non-immigrant status, you have to establish that you, you do not um, intend to remain in the US permanently. Now there are certain visas that have, um, um, that, that basically allow you to have dual intent um, where you can, you know, intend to be remaining. Uh, it, dual intent is kind of a legal fiction, I guess. Um, where uh, to give an example, H1 persons present in the US uh, on an H1B can have both the intent to um, pursue H1B employment, uh, so non-immigrant employment, but they can also be actively seeking um, permanent residence. Um, so certain statuses let you have dual intent. Um, a non-immigrant visa, it's, it's basically just a, a stamp uh, placed in the passport that reveals, that, that shows that a consular officer has reviewed the, the application and is satisfied that um, the person is eligible to seek admission in whatever category, whether it be a tourist, uh, H-1B, uh, L-1, a student visa, et cetera. It doesn't guarantee admission, so Customs and Border Patrol can deny entry if, if they receive information that indicates that maybe that status was was granted in error or if some for some reason they decide that um, maybe the person is not coming for the purpose that they um, um, indicated to the, the consular officer or if other information reveals itself, they can deny admission, but um, hopefully you don't encounter that. Um, as I said, the I-94, there's a distinction between the I-94 that we talked about earlier, which is the, the uh, documentation issued by the Customs and Border Patrol and the visa itself. The I-94 um, is basically a record of entry, but it, it's important to understand that the I-94 is what controls the, the status under which a person is, is admitted to the U.S. Um, so um, the, the I-94 is normally going to say, you know, whether a person is admitted as uh, an H-1B or a tourist, B-2, et cetera. And it's also going to set the, the duration of stay. PERM, uh, that's an online system for filing labor applications. And I see we're, we're losing, we're already losing some time. So I'll try to get through this. Um, but um, the PERM, uh, the labor certification is required for most employment-based um, um, uh, immigrant visas. Um, the, the preference categories, that kind of runs hand in hand with this. Um, the, uh, basically, immigrant visas are uh, allotted um, on preference categories. They, so the broad categories are employment and family base. And within that, there's a hierarchy of, of categories. Um, and uh, that's, they're also further divided into country of origin. So it's, it's country of origin, the broad category, family versus employment-based, and then within that, the hierarchy whether it be employment-based first preference, second pref preference, third preference, et cetera. So, and that um, uh, visas are allocated based on the, the, those categories. Um, and that determines when you um, are actually able to, to seek lawful permanent residence. So you can file the, the immigrant visa. Um, however, some of them have a long waiting period. Um, depending on country or preference category that a person's applying under. 
So um, the, the immigrant visa can be pending sometimes for more than 10 years. Sometimes it's, there's an immigrant visa immediately available, but um, uh, sometimes there is a long wait. Um, the priority date, that is the date, basically when you were, um, uh, that's sort of the place, your, that, that, that priority date is your, um, when you assumed your place in line um, for purposes of receiving an immigrant visa. Um, so for employment-based cases, assuming that the I-140, which we'll get into again later, is, is properly filed, the, for employment-based cases, the um, priority date is established um, on the date that the labor certification, sometimes referred to as the PERM, um, is, is filed with the Department of Labor. Uh, an, a visa is an endorsement from the Department of State that the bearer has been examined and is permitted to seek admission at a port of, port of entry. Um, so there are both immigrant and non-immigrant. As we said before, CVP can deny admission uh, at the time that you actually arrive at the border. Um, the visa waiver program is, is basically a program that allows people to, to forego the, the process of seeking a visa at the consulate. Um, and so it's based on uh, prearranged uh, agreements that the United States has with, with certain countries that allows their citizens to um, forego the consulate processing. U.S. citizen, um, that is by birth or, um, or by naturalization. Um, under the 14th Amendment, um, all persons born in the United States are, um, are, are, are citizens. Um, and, that, and that's regardless of the parent status. Um, or whether, you know, as long as you're born in the U.S., you are considered a citizen. For natural, that's all persons who are not U.S. citizens. Uh, and that includes people, you know, both people who are here um, lawfully and, and also persons without any, any legal status. So it's basically everyone who is not a citizen. Um, this real quick is the, the, this is the common categories of non-immigrant work visas. Now, not all of these are work authorized, but they're visas that are, um, people seek in connection with their employment. Um, these, this is the, 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 um, the alphabetical list, which will um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll run through these uh, quickly. Uh, the B1, uh, that's the first of these. This is technically not, a, not a, uh, an employment-based uh, um, visa. So you have to, have you have to show that, that you have residence abroad. Um, so the... Um, you know, it allows you to travel to the U.S. for scientific purposes, for business, um, negotiating contracts, starting a business, you know, or setting up an office, for example. However, um, it, it's not, you cannot be working for a U.S. employer on a, on a B-1. And you can't, you can't be self-employed either. There's, that's, that's not part of the B-1. Um, to be eligible, you have to establish that you have non-immigrant intent. Um, so in other words, that you intend to, to depart at a fixed point. Um, that uh, the, the B-1 is obtained by filing a DS-160 with, um, uh, with, with the Department of State. Normally, uh, entries are, are uh, granted in six-month increments, um, um, but uh, sometimes you can extend or change status while in the United States. The, um, the ESTA program, um, it, it lets uh, people travel, uh, it's, um, 
people coming on a visa wave through um, can can enter on an ESTA. The the key difference between entry on a on a B1 visa versus ESTA is that um, the ESTA doesn't let you change status. Um, the, the rationale there is that persons who are coming in on a on a tourist or on a um, on a B1 have undergone consular processing, so there's been some level of background check and, and review of the person. Whereas somebody on a um, uh, on an ESTA, they um, haven't haven't done that. Um, you can seek uh, LPR status, so adjustment of status as an ESTA, but there there's some wrinkles there. Um, it's a little more difficult than doing it. Well, there there are wrinkles if you're doing it as B1 as well, but um, I guess fewer wrinkles. Sort of a topic for another day. The E1 and E2, the trader and investor visas. Um, this is these are a set of uh, visas that are available for people coming to trade uh, in, in goods or services, or as as an investors coming to, um, you know, who have invested or, or are investing in a in an, an enterprise in the United States. Um, it's based and and I'll um. Oops. The next couple of slides will show you. Um, so this is the E1, the list of treaty countries who have um, E1 treaty trader arrangements with the United States. The next one, the E2, it's largely overlaps. However, you can see there's a, a little bit different. Um, a, a few more countries have E2 investor treaties with the United States than, than the E1. Um, to be eligible, you have to be a citizen of a treaty country um, uh, and work for or own a company engaged in substantial trade or investment in the U.S. Uh, this would normally be in a managerial or executive position or somebody who possesses skills that are essential to the operation of the business. Um, it's normally granted in two-year increments. Um, and it can be it can be uh, extended indefinitely. Now the student visa is, is like the B1. It's not a technically a work visa, um, but sometimes people can receive limited work authorization as part of their course of study. Um, so after completing um, college, a college or university program, you can apply for one year of work authorization, which is uh, um, uh, optional Practical Training, OPT, uh, which I think I've used that acronym already. Um, I apologize if I didn't define it before, but OPT, that's that's what it is. It's essentially a form of work authorization that runs hand in hand with, with someone's coursework. Um, CPT, which is Curricular Practical Training, um, in limited circumstances, persons uh, here on an, on an F1 student visa can um, they can work as part of their course of study. Um, however, it's, it, this is all tied into the actual course of study. So that doesn't mean uh, just freelancing or, you know, doing, you know, getting a job as an Uber driver or, you know, getting a job at a coffee shop or something. You, you have to, um, it has to be tied in with the course of study. Um, the OPT program is, um, it'll be approved in 12 month increments normally, uh, except that for uh, STEM programs, you can, you can get a further extension up to, uh, up to 36 months. So you can get a full three years after completing your course of study if you're um, in a uh, 
STEM program. Um, one thing to note about the F1, uh, one benefit of the F1 OPT um, is that it allows for uh, cap gap protection, which um, uh, if, if someone is coming to the United States, uh, you know, as a student, they, they, then they do their OPT. Sometimes they'll, um, you know, they'll, they'll uh, have a, a re relationship with a U.S. worker or, or excuse me, a U.S. employer and the, and the employer maybe wants to do uh, an H-1B, uh, fi file an H-1B for them. Because the H-1B program, the start, the the start date for those is is normally in or, or is is in October, um, and a lot of times the the OPT will expire, for example, in May or or June. If it's you know if it's a one year uh, uh, add on to an F one program, there'll be this gap between the end of the OPT program and the start of the H one B. And with the cap gap protection, basically they can remain in the US until they can actually start the H-1B employment. So um, F1, so the, the cheat sheet here, uh, international students are eligible if they've completed their program of study, um, they're, they're eligible to receive OPT. Um, that's uh, obtained through the international student office. Um, and they'll, they'll document the, the process uh, needed to um, fill out the form I-765 in order to get a, an EAD for the, um, uh, for the OPT, which is uh, one of the necessary documents that they need to show to show work authorization. Um, now the H-1B. The H-1B is the, the biggest of the, the employment-based visa programs. Um, and we'll, we'll cover sort of the basic criteria, benefits and limitations. Um, uh, CAP, uh, we'll briefly touch on the uh, CAP exempt employment. Uh, the the H-1B CAP is kind of a key concept with the H-1B program, which we'll get into. Um, we'll talk about annual quotas and timing, and then um, uh, some of the limitations on CAP, CAP exempt petitions. So um, the key thing about the H-1B, so the, um, the H-1B is kind of the preferred um, non-immigrant employment-based visa. Um, it, uh, it does require that you have a sponsoring employer. Um, it's for, uh, it's confined to specialty occupations, which means that uh, someone has a theoretical and practical uh, application of a body of highly specialized knowledge and attainment of a bachelor's degree or higher within that specific specialty um, or the equivalent. Um, so that's the minimum. Basically, those two things are sort of the minimum for entry into the occupation in the United States. So to qualify, H-1B uh, beneficiaries have to have uh, at least a bachelor's um, which sometimes um, in, in some countries, a uh, bachelor's degree are, are commonly awarded after three years of study. Uh, in, in that case, you can combine either a, a bachelor's and then a master's um, or a bachelor's plus in some instances, work experience can be counted towards the um, um, uh, towards the, the bachelor's equivalent. So um, 
some some education evaluators will regard uh, three years of specialized experience as equivalent to one year of education. And, and that um, approach has been accepted by uh, USCIS. Um, but it has to be that the specialized experience has to be tied directly to um, you know, the, 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 the coursework and, and the position. Um, and not only must the, the individual um, have a bachelor's degree, but the program or the, the position itself has to require a bachelor's degree. Um, and so that normally means that um, the bachelor's or higher is normally the minimum for the position, or if it's sort of a unique uh, position that it's normally required for um, par parallel positions within the industry, um, or that the, the, the employer, um, the sponsoring employer normally requires the, a bachelor's, or that the specific duties are so specialized that a, a bachelor's is required to adequately perform the job. Um, it's important to note that the, the, the beneficiary has to meet the criteria at the time of filing um, so they can't, um, you know, if they're like, for example, let's say they're, they're completing their bachelor's degree and, and the, the H-1B is filed in April and they complete their degree in, in May or June. Unfortunately, that's not going to work because they didn't meet the requirements at the time of filing the, the H-1B. So um, one thing to note is that um, multiple filings for the same position are, are, are prohibited. Um, so that means that, for example, like a, um, so if, if two affiliated organizations want to file, kind of increase their chances of getting the, the H-1B uh, beneficiaries case approved, they can't both file petitions for, for that individual. Um, that'll result in the, the case being thrown out. Um, just want to make sure I've covered everything here. Um, it does require that the employer provide public notice uh, that they intend to hire the H-1B worker and that they disclose the rate of pay. Um, they are um, required to pay a prevailing wage. So again, that's tying into sort of the overarching theme in all employment-based um, immigrant visa cases um, is, is that the um, conditions of employment are not going to erode labor conditions in the United States. Um, the, the benefits, in terms of benefits of the H-1B, um, it, it allows beneficiaries to receive six years, a total of six years. Um, sometimes uh, they can actually extend beyond the six years. Um, the H-1B the program it runs hand in hand with um, employment-based, uh, with, with uh, PERM sponsorship, uh, employment-based um, uh, immigrant sponsorship for a green card. Um, it, it allows for dual intent. So, so the fact that they're seeking both, um, both a green card and um, are currently employed in the U.S. in a non-immigrant status is not an issue for H-1B beneficiaries. Um, and in terms of extending beyond the six-year limit, um, if they have a labor certification, or an I-140, which is the, the um, petition that, that the US employer files with USCIS um, to, to basically certify the position for purposes of, of allowing that person to obtain a green card. Um, if, that's, if the labor cert of the I-140 are pending for more than a year, 
when the person hits their, their six year mark, um, they can continue to extend their status in one year increments. Um, if they have an approved I-140, but they can't file their green card because of the per country limits, which we talked about earlier in terms of the, um, uh, the preference categories, um, you know, if they, let's say, for example, the person is coming from India and they are in EB3 status, so there's a long wait to, to actually receive an immigrant visa, um, they can nonetheless continue to extend their, um, their H-1B status beyond the six-year limit in, in th continuous three-year increments until they're actually able to file the green card. Um, we talked about the cap gap protections. Um, you, you can, um, in certain instances, have concurrent H-1B jobs that you're, you're working at. Um, it's non-competitive, meaning that, you, you know, that the U.S. employer doesn't have to show that they have you know, basically if there, there's no better US, you know, that this person isn't somehow better or the only candidate for a job, um, but they do nonetheless have to show that they are abiding by um, the LCA, that they that the, this employment is not eroding US employment. Um, it does let you bring in spouses and children. So in, in what's called H4 status. Um, the annual quota, this is a big issue with the H-1Bs, especially under this, the new, um, this new electronic registration setup that, they, that, they, that they've implemented. Um, so right now, the current limit is 65,000. Um, there's an additional 20,000 for the master's cap. If you're, if you're um, uh, part of the master's cap, there's this 20,000 carve out. But um, if you're not selected as part of the master's cap, you, you go into the other pool, the 65, the pool of 65,000. Um, so persons who have a U.S. master's can, you know, they can file under the master's cap, but doing so doesn't somehow just, you know, it's not like they have to pick one or the other. They're, they're auto automatically um, included in both. Um, the new lottery procedure that was recently implemented um, this year, it was open between March 9th and March 25th. And basically what it is, is the employer goes online, registers the H-1B um, beneficiary, they just pay a $10 fee. In the old days, you had to complete a whole H-1B application and file it um, in the first week of April. So in essence, the, the threshold in order to file a petition for someone has, has gone down substantially. And we're going to see in the next slide the, the impact that that has had. But basically, if, if they are selected as part of the lottery, if the, the beneficiaries, then the employer files the application starting on April 1st. Um, as I said, the, the, you're going to see here. So this was sort of uh, previous levels of participation in the H-1B, um, in the, in the, uh, the lottery. Um, and and I, I actually saw a recent blog post that my, I guess my 2021 statistics are, are low. Um, it, it was uh, uh, 200, I, I had 275,000. It, it's, it's actually, from what I understand, over 300,000 um, competing for 85,000 visas. So less than a one in three chance of actually getting selected. Um, but uh, that brings us to uh, cap exempt employers. Um, so certain, certain employers are, are exempt from the uh, the H-1B cap. Um, uh, so that would include uh, employment by colleges or universities. 
nonprofits that are affiliated with a college or university, um, nonprofit research organizations or, or government research organizations. And that it also includes um, some for-profit enterprises that are providing services to one of those entities. Um, if someone has a part-time, uh, an H-1B for a part-time position for a CAP-exempt employer, they can also have concurrent employment for a, a non-CAP uh, enterprise, but the primary, the person's primary employment has to be with the, the CAP-exempt employer. Um, processing of H-1Bs, um, under the new system, there's the, you know, the employer has to file the electronic registration. Um, then they have to file the LCA with the Department of Labor. Um, and then they can file the, the, then they file the actual I-129 petition for non-immigrant worker. Um, here listed below in the slide are, are the current um, fees. Um, for persons that are um, H-1B dependent, they, there are additional fees that come into play that are, are pretty substantial. Um, the employer has to pay the, the fees under Department of Labor regulations. They can't pass the fees on to uh, onto the, the, the employee. Um, in terms of who is eligible, as I said, requires a bachelor's degree um, and an uh, uh, employer willing to sponsor them in a specialty occupation. In terms of applying, the CAP subject employer has to register um, and and uh, after and file the LCA. The LCA can be done before or after registering for the lottery, um, but assuming that the LCA is in place, um, the employer can then file the H-1P petition uh, on April first if the if the uh, the beneficiary is selected. Um, in terms of uh, how long, um, usually the uh, the increment it's it, the H-1B is issued in three-year increments, with the possibility to extend for six, as we said, and then um, under the AC-21 rules, um, they as as we touched on earlier, there's a possibility of extension beyond the six-year limit. Um, free trade professionals. So the, there's um, this includes. Um, Persons coming under a TN visa under the NAFTA, uh, NAFTA agreements with Mexico and Canada. There are no quotas. Um, it's uh, three years at a time. It, it uh, requires employment by a US employer. Um, so there's no um, self-sponsorship. Um, the, the job has to be identified under the, the NAFTA treaty. And I've got the link here in the, in the slide. Um, Canadian uh, applicants can apply at the port of entry. Um, persons coming from Mexico have to obtain uh, a, a, a visa through a US consulate. Uh, other uh, free trade uh, positions include the H-1B1, which is a, a carve out for persons from Singapore and Chile. It's it's just like the H-1B program, but it's, it's a, a, a an extra quota for persons from H-1B in Singapore. Uh, E3, that's um, for persons from Australia. Um, again, it's uh, for specialty occupations similar to the H-1B. Um, and just as with the H-1B, the employer has to make the, um, the LCA uh, attestations that you know, the employment is not going to be under terms that are somehow dis disadvantageous for, for US workers. 
um, both the H1B1 and the E3 have um, uh, high quotas relative to the actual usage. So for persons from those countries, they're a good option. Um, and, and USCI action is not required. Um, so there's no USCIS pre-approval. Um, they can apply directly at, the, at a US consulate. So just to summarize, um, it's uh, persons from Canada, Mexico, Australia, Chile, and Singapore are eligible under the special rules um, for uh, uh, free trade countries. Um, Canada, you can apply at the border. Um, all others have to apply a US embassy or consulate. Um, in terms of durations, the TN visa allows you to come in three-year three increments. The, e, uh, the E3 is two-year increments, and then the H1B1 is, uh, is, is uh, one-year increments. Um, the J1, which we, we talked briefly about that uh, during the, the earlier part of the presentation about um, exchange, uh, exchange visitors. Um, it's this sort of broad quasi work visa. Um, it, it's, um, it, it has aspects of employment, education, training, um, but the, the sort of the heart of the J-1 program is it's designed to foster um, kind of a cultural exchange between the United States and other countries with um, culture being very broadly defined. So you can kind of think of it in terms of um, fostering um, diplomatic relations between the United States and, and, and other countries. So um, cate common categories include persons coming to serve as, as J-1 professors or research scholars. Um, so they might be coming to serve as uh, you know, teaching, lecturing, um, conducting research. Um, medical researchers will often come on a, a J-1 and they'll be working hand in hand with you, other uh, US medical researchers. The idea is sort of this cross-pollination between the, the research happening in the United States and research happening abroad. Um, some of the uh, J-1 programs do involve a foreign residence uh, requirement. Um, so, um, the, uh, so for example, for professors and researchers have a 12 or 24 months depending on the prior program duration. Um, and then other categories may have a 12 months depending on the, the, the prior program. Um, there is oftentimes a two-year home residence requirement. And the, the reason for that is that the, the J-1, as, as I said, it's, it's designed to foster cultural exchange. So the idea is that whatever benefit, that the, the beneficiary of a J-1 is going to receive um, exposure to, you know, U.S. research or ideas or concepts or, or you know, um, you know, the, 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 there's some aspect of, of um, their, their visit to the United States that is, uh, it, it's of value to the United States, but it's also a value to the foreign country. Um, so for example, uh, medical researchers, um, before they can come back to the United States and seek a green card, for example, um, they have to go back to their country of origin and, and reside there for two years. The idea being that they will share what they've learned or what they've been exposed to. So it's sort of this, this idea of kind of cross-pollination between the United States and, and other countries. 
Um, sometimes that two-year residence can be um, can be waived. And, and also I'd note that that, some, that is sometimes inadvertently applied at the border. Um, so sometimes they, or, or, um, or at the consulate, they might um, put, uh, the, they might stamp the visa as, as one being subject to a two-year home residence requirement, which, where it's not really a program that requires that. Um, and, and sometimes that there's a process that you can undergo to waive the, the two-year um, residence requirement. Um, Uh, so in terms of eligibility, it's 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 very wide. It's it's everything from au pairs to 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 physicians. Um, it's it's a it's a broad category that's um, been sort of uh, outlined by the Department of State. Um, there's there's a set of positions that that um, that are eligible for the J1. Uh, in terms of how to apply, um, you apply at a U.S. embassy or consulate abroad um, with the program sponsors endorsed. Uh, the program, the form is a DS two zero one nine. The um, the duration of the program varies. Um, some will be as short as six months. Other times, it can be up to five years. So, now, the L one is sort of the the other besides the H one B. That's the other big employment based visa category, and that again requires sponsorship by by a U.S. employer. Um, and the employee must have worked abroad for one complete year in the last three years for the parent branch subsidiary affiliate of a U.S. employer. Um, the, L1, the, the L1 program uh, breaks down into the L1A and the L1Bs. The L1A is uh, executives and managers, um, and the L1B is persons with specialized knowledge. So that would be like... Um, for example, someone who works for a, a foreign parent company of a U.S. subsidiary um, that has uh, advanced knowledge of proprietary technology or processes, and, and they're basically coming to, to, to share that with um, the U.S. operations. Um, in terms of who is eligible, that's managers and executives for the one and, and or individuals with specialized or advanced knowledge. Um, it does require um, a related U.S. employer to file the petition, so it's not a self-sponsorship. Um, and that's, it, it can be, the employer can file, uh, they, they file the I-129 with an L supplement. Uh, and then the employee um, seeks L-1 visa at a U.S. embassy. Um, the L1 blanket is, is uh, that's a, um, a type of application that the employer files with USCIS if they intend to file um, uh, L1s for a, for a number of employees. They can, they can file a blanket petition and then there's like a subs subsequent process that they file for each individual case that's a little bit more streamlined um, and, and, and easier. Um, that again is like the H-1B is uh, generally it's an initial uh, three years. The L-1A can then uh, get two two-year extensions. L-1Bs can get um, uh, one two-year extension. So um, the O-1, um, that's uh, another, another um, key category that like the L-1 and the H-1B, they, that kind of runs hands in hand with um, employment-based, uh, seeking an employment-based green card. 
Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the O1A is for science, education, business, or athletics. The O1B would be in the, in the arts. Um, normally it requires uh, sponsorship from a uh, US employer for an event, but that event is sort of broadly defined. It can be like a big project but it can also be more narrowly defined as like, a, you know, a, um, uh, you know, like a, I'm trying to think of an example, but um, uh, it might be like a lecture series or a conference or a business project or something. So um, for uh, touring musicians, uh, sometimes you'll have like an agent, for example, who serves as the US employer for that, for that O1. Um, the O1A, I, I'm, I'm not going to go through all the criteria. I think um, uh, Jenna is Jenna with the, the BBA is going to share the slide deck with everybody. But um, this this is the uh, the criteria for the uh, for the O1A. Um, you have to show that. Um, well, it's it basically it's it suffice it to say that this is sort of reserved for persons who are, are really at the, at the top of their field, um, who, um, you know, who are, are part of sort of a, a rare group of, of individuals within the field who, for whom kind of specialized treatment is, is, is warranted. The O1B for artists. Um, uh, so again, this, it's sort of the same idea. Um, so it's someone who's going to perform or will perform in a services as a lead or starring participant in productions or events. So you, um, it, it's not necessarily someone who's coming to be, you know, like a movie star, um, but it's it's generally, you know, someone who is coming to do sort of important artistic work. Um, it might be someone, you know, working for like a prestigious orchestra or a ballet or something like that. Um, you know, who, who is, again, someone who's sort of at the top of their field. Uh, cheat sheet here. Um, the, uh, this would be um, extraordinary ability in the arts, sciences, businesses, or athletics. Um, they, it requires, similar to the H-1B and the L-1, the employer or agent has to file an I-129, in this case with an O supplement. Um, uh, it, it can be done as a change of status, but it's it's often done as a, at a consular post. Um, but it but can be done as a change of status from some other non-immigrant status to the O1. Um, it's generally uh, a three-year uh, period followed by one-year extensions, and, and it can be extended indefinitely. Um, the P visa um, has a little bit of overlap with the O1. Uh, the P1A is for athletes coming to the U.S. temporarily to perform at a specific uh, competition. Um, P3 would be artists or entertainers for a culturally unique program um, or individuals coming to us like a, um, for example, like a, um, um, you know, like a, a, a sort of a culturally unique um, program. Um, as just to, to summarize for uh, internationally recognized athletes or artists coming for a cultural event. Um, yeah. uh, R1, I'm gonna speed up a little bit because I do wanna uh, get to the, uh, the labor cert uh, part of this. The R1, this would be for religious workers, um, has to be at least part-time. 
Um, it's uh, ministers or com persons coming to perform a religious vocation or occupation. Um, it's uh, so you can again we'll we'll share the slide deck, um, but that's persons you know like a priest um, or a nun, a monk, someone who is um, you know sort of a traditional religious vocation. Um, and again, here's the the cheat sheet that tells you. Um, who's eligible, briefly who's eligible and, and how to apply. It's uh, five years and 2.5 and 2.5 year increments. Um, so here, pathways to permanent residence. So here's a brief overview of the, of the ways to obtain permanent residence. What we're focused on here is the employment-based. Let's get to the heart of it. So the, uh, the Principal employment-based permanent resident categories include the EB-1, which is persons of extraordinary ability, uh, outstanding professors and researchers, multinational managers, and executives. So again, this, this ties into the O-1 category, so it sort of runs hands in hands with those. Um, the EB-2 requires a master, master's degree or equivalent, and equivalent specifically means a bachelor's degree plus five years of progressive post-baccalaureate experience. EB-3, that includes persons with uh, professionals, so bachelor's degree, or skilled workers, um, so that's that, that's the EB-3 category. Does um, the U.S. employer must sponsor the foreign worker except for EB-1s, EB-1s are exempt, and EB-2 is under the national interest waiver, which we'll get into in a moment. And all categories are subject to the annual quotas. Um, if you have an interest, you can look at the, uh, the, um, the, the annual quotas on the, the Department of State's um, uh, visa bulletin. There are significant backlogs for some categories, so it's something to keep in mind when sort of um, uh, planning the, the process. And so here, this is uh, as of April 21st, you can see that the first preference category for employment base is current across the board. Uh, second preference for China and India is, is those are the, the only two countries that are significantly de delayed. And again, third preference is again significantly, significantly delayed for China and India. Uh, green card process for uh, the labor certification. So most employment-based green cards are through a labor cert. Um, step one, the, uh, um, the employer has to um, uh, submit the, uh, the labor certification with, uh, with uh, the Department of Labor. Um, so this, well, um, as a prerequisite, I, I, we have this a little bit jumbled here, but the step one, um, the, the I-140, before getting to the I-140, the, you have to file a, a labor cert with, um, um, with the Department of Labor. Um, but when we get to the I-140, um, that's filed by the petitioner um, showing that they meet the criteria. Um, the, then step two, what, assuming that a, a, an immigrant visa is available, you then file the I-45. And again, there may be substantial weights. The EB-1, um, so this is persons of extraordinary ability, as we talked about briefly. Um, basically requires you to present, present evidence of either a major award, think like, you know, like the Nobel Prize or, or, or an Oscar or something like that, or three um, lesser categories. Um, and here are the, the other criteria right here. 
Um, the um, uh, EB1B, which is Outstanding Professors and Researchers, um, they, uh, they may not sponsor, so the employer has to sponsor them, but, uh, but they do not have to file a labor cert. Um, and so you can see the criteria here it requires at least three years of teaching, um, uh, you know, requires uh, that they've been sort of internationally recognized for as, as outstanding in their field. So th the whole EB1 category is, is sort of reserved for persons of who are sort of at the top of their field. Um, and here again is the, the eligibility cri criteria for the EB1B. Um, here's the EB2. Um, this requires that you possess a master's degree or equivalent or present evidence of exceptional ability. Um, this normally requires a labor cert um, or a national interest waiver, and which we'll get into. Um, the national interest waiver, this comes from matter of Danasar, which um, supplanted the longstanding matter of uh, New York State Department of Transportation. Foreign nationals proposed endeavor has substantial merit and national importance that the foreign national is well positioned to advance the proposed endeavor and that on balance it would be beneficial to waive the job offer and labor certification requirement. The, the, the labor cert is the default. So what you're basically trying to establish is that, that, that basically that um, in the, in, as a matter of national interest, it's worth it to waive the requirement of the labor certification. So here's some examples of what is considered to be in the national interest. So promoting economic development, uh, improving wages and working conditions, um, improving health care. So the, the idea here is it's, it's, um, there has to be sort of a concrete uh, benefit to the United States from the individual's employment such that it's worth it to waive the, the labor certification. Um, so this is the default is EB3, EB2 or EB3 labor cert. Um, the EB1 and the EB2 national interest waiver are sort of the, the exceptions to the rule. In most cases to seek a green card based on employment-based sponsorship, it requires a labor cert, which means that the employer has done a good faith test of the US job market. And I, I see that we're running up on time. So I'll try to condense this as best I can. Uh, I just have a few more slides, but the, the basically the employer has to conduct a good faith test of the market. Um, it's, it's very structured. So um, there's this set um, uh, process that the employer has to follow um, for, for uh, um, advertising for the position. Um, the position has to be at, con at prevailing wages. So it cannot be that the, the person's being employed at below prevailing wage. It can't undercut the market. Um, but if the labor test shows that there are no qualified, willing, and able U.S. workers available, they file a labor cert. This is a little bit inaccurate right now, I think, just with the, the whole COVID thing. Um, but but uh, generally, it's, it's, it takes DOL about six months to, to review the labor certification, assuming that there's no audit or anything like that. Um, and then uh, once they've certified it, the, the employer then files the I-140. Um, which is the immigrant petition for alien worker. Um, once that's approved, they, they can both apply to extend their H-1B indefinitely. Um, but while, if, you know, if they are from India or China, um, 
But in, in most other cases, if they're either EB1 or from a country other than India or China, they can file, just go ahead and file the, the green card application. Um, so they can be filed simultaneously. Um, so EB1s, just to summarize, no labor cert. EB2, do need a labor cert except if uh, a national interest waiver is available. EB3s need a labor cert for, for all positions. Um, just briefly applying for a social security. Um, you know, once you enter the US in a category that authorizes work, you can receive a change of status to a category, uh, or, or, if you, or if you change status to a category, you can then apply for a social security number. Um, so it, uh, if you're applying for, if you're transitioning from like an H-1B or an L-1 or some other non-immigrant visa status to an immigrant visa status, um, your social security number is going to stay the same, um, but you should probably request a card that doesn't say it show valid only with DHS authorization. If you're um, just as a practical matter, if you're, you know, so that you don't have to go through when you're doing the, um, the I-9 process, you don't have to, you know, you basically can just show your card. Um, you don't have that, that, that notation on the, on the social security card. Um, I-9, um, this is, um, is everyone who, who uh, you know, on the, your first day of work, you're, you're likely going to fill out an I-9. Um, for the employer, this is very important. Um, and it's showing their compliance that they're not um, employing anyone who does not have work authorization. Um, for the foreign national, when they're, when they're going through the I-9 process with their, their employer, it's really important never to claim to be a US citizen. Uh, that has serious consequences from an immigration perspective. Um, and then my last slide, COVID-19 and consular processing. Um, and I, I know we've run up a little bit, so I'm just gonna wrap up here, um, but just very briefly, um, just some, some brief notes. March 18th, on, uh, on March 18th of last year, um, because of the COVID pandemic, DOS announced that it was suspending routine visa services worldwide. Um, so basically anyone who is seeking to do consular processing, their case was frozen. Uh, on July 22nd, they announced phase resumption of visa services, um, but that was really confined to emergency and mission critical services. So it wasn't really a, a, a true reopening. And most recently, this earlier this month, um, they've you know noted that the, the pandemic continues to severely affect the ability of embassies and consulates around the world to be able to resume routine services. Citizens, citizen services are, are given priority. Uh, and then after that, immediate relatives and family sponsored applicants are also given high priority. Um, importantly, employment-based visas are not listed as, as receiving high priority. So I guess the takeaway is that for um, employers and beneficiaries seeking to come into the US, on an employment-based visa, you, at least for the time being, you can expect fairly sub substantial delays. So it'll be important to manage employer and employee expectations. Um, we can turn it over for a few question and answers. Um, uh, but I, I did, it's, um, if, if, um, if anybody does have questions, um, you can also email me. So just by first name, daniel at celadonlaw.com. And that's uh, on the first, uh, on the first um, 
slide in the in the deck is my contact information. So I don't see uh, I don't see any open questions, um, Alan. I don't know if you um, if we're going to wrap up for the day or if we'll we'll stay on. But um, if anybody does have questions, um, absolutely feel free to uh, you know to, to email me. I have nothing on my end, but thank you, Daniel. Thank you, everyone, for coming and for joining us. Have a good afternoon. Sure. Thanks. Thanks. And, and again, if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate the help.